0: That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Cyrus Shapar, Director of the Prevent Epidemics Team at Resolve to Save Lives. Dr. Shapar is an emergency department physician and former team lead of the U.S. Global Rapid Response Team for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We spoke about the ability to rapidly increase medical capacity in response to the novel coronavirus. Let's listen. Dr. Shapar, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we're going to talk about medical surge. And I understand you've had some experience in your career with the need to scale up a medical response quickly. Could you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think domestically, as an emergency physician working in you know, urban medical centers, uh, we see an influx of patients coming in with, say, seasonal flu at different times of year. And you know, hospitals have to adjust in terms of managing the caseload. And then, you know, I worked internationally for many years for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, more on the public health side, but just helping uh, governments and partners plan for an influx of cases around infectious disease events, natural disasters, and things like that. So, you know, situations that overwhelm existing capacity in both established healthcare systems like the United States, but also those that really at baseline don't have a lot of capacity, such as those in Africa and parts of Asia. And so when you see a huge influx of people demanding services or, or seeking care, you really quickly get to that level of not having enough capacity and trying to figure out how you deal with that.
0: And so in mean, the United States, you know, most places are built to be relatively full because if they weren't full, then for the most part, then they, they would be money losing propositions. And yet when you have this situation, you've got to go much bigger. How does that happen? What's the process of? Growing a healthcare system's capability rapidly.
1: Yeah, I think there's some things that you can adjust uh, easily, and some things that are harder to adjust. So I think the average occupancy rate in the United States for regular hospital beds is on the order of 65, um, and ICUs, you know, a little bit higher than that. But some things you can scale are things like staff. Uh, so you there's you have existing staff, and if needed, can call upon other pools of staff. Say nursing staff is a particular area that often faces shortages. But there are resources out there for hospitals to mobilize staff. But then the infrastructure is a different challenge in terms of the number of fixed beds you might have in a hospital or critical care beds. Then it's about managing within the infrastructure things like the length of stay of patients, making sure that they're in the proper place to get the level of care they need. And when they don't need that level of care anymore, they're in other parts of the facility. And then using, creatively using other parts of the facility to do things like. Triage patients in parking lots and things like that.
0: Wow. What are the first elements of that kind of surge plan that you put in place right away? And then what are the things that are like the maybe one week to one month elements?
1: I think you need to have plans in place even before. So, before immediately, you need to have plans for surge, especially for things that are seasonal. We know that these things happen every year, and hopefully, we learn from prior years. So relationships with staffing companies, and then also supplies to adequately scale up beds or even change the equipment around beds. And then you need to have a good understanding of the situation. So what is the situation, say, nationally in the United States? What is the situation at the local level? When is the wave of illness coming to your area? And how long do we expect it to be? And also, you know, what does the illness look like in terms of how severe it is in this particular instance in the United States? Um, So, so in a place right now
0: that is thinking about scaling its healthcare system has to have a sense of what's coming. So the model is going to be very important. Exactly. And now we're seeing, you know, these reports that like convention centers, hotels might be turned into hospitals. Can you do that? Like, what what are the considerations, and, and how does that actually happen?
1: Yeah, I think state and local governments are searching for places that could potentially serve thousands of people. Certainly not the same level of infrastructure as an established hospital, but Can we set a basic level of care and use huge spaces, appropriately equip them with areas to separate sick from well, and then essentially equip them with beds and things like that and so staff can operate there? That's what was done in China. They have very nice scale-up in terms of the hospitals they were able to put together. I don't think we would quite look like that, but in terms of being able to provide supportive care for, say, coronavirus patients... That's something that we need to start doing. We should have already been doing it in terms of planning. We know a lot of attention has been on bed capacity and what's going to be needed at the peak of cases, both at the regular hospital beds and also critical care beds.
0: And we hear about beds. Yeah. You know, like it's actual beds that are going to roll off the truck. They're shipping 500 beds. What turns a space into a medical space besides literally having a bed there?
1: Yeah, it's it's the equipment Everything that's needed to take care of a patient in one place. So we say beds kind of as a proxy for all of that, I think. But You need certain things to be in place in order to have a functional place to take care of patients. So you need the actual space. You do need a bed, but you need equipment like a machine to measure vital signs. And if it's a more critically ill patient, you need critical care equipment, a ventilator, these kinds of things. But I think one of the things that uh, we need to remember is that the most important thing is you need trained staff. Um, And that can also be a limitation that we haven't necessarily identified as well as we have the number of beds, at least in media articles. But the number of trained intensivists and critical care staff is extremely important, and it is potentially a limiting factor. So we could have a huge, uh, you know, hangar with thousands of beds, but if we don't have the staff that are trained to take care of these patients then that's going to be a big problem. And as this pandemic grows, we have to remember that they can be affected as well, and that can affect the supply of trains staff.
0: Right, right. And obviously, the personal protective equipment access yeah. is critical to preserving their ability to keep seeing patients. Before we get there, yeah. is there like a, you know, I mean, I'm just imagining there are like plans for how you construct a hospital, a convention center, or how you, you know turn a hotel into a, essentially a hospital at some level of acuity. Like, like, where do those guides come from?
1: Yeah, there are basic plans. I think um, Health and Human Services has these plans. So there's the Centers for Disease Control for specific parts of the plan. Groups like FEMA would also be involved in the creation of those plans. I think what needs to happen is they need to be adapted for the specific agent or pathogen that we're dealing with. You know, There's certainly disaster-oriented plans for natural disasters uh, such as Hurricane Katrina that, mm-hmm. that deal with the National Disaster Medical System and, and scaling up those beds.
0: Right. But but I I mean, like, is there like a plan that says, like, build a hospital in five days plan? Uh, Here's how you do it.
1: I I think the only experience I've seen is in China with doing it in five days. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know that those plans are... In the hands of, say, people in the United States. Right. Well, what is in the hands of people
0: in the United States? Is there a build a hospital in two weeks plan? Like, you know, is there a folder people are breaking open, saying, "Now it's time to to do this," and everybody kind of knows their part to do it, or are people just having to get in there and figure it out based on the space that they have available?
1: I think what's most likely, and I don't know for certain, Mm -hmm. is that they're taking existing plans, looking at what they have, and trying to adapt those to the situation rather than having your no playbook.
0: Right. Let me ask you about staff. What kind of training is possible in this kind of crisis to really make more staff? I saw that New York has put out the call for retired and out-of-work physicians and nurses. Some cases, I've been reading that they're trying to train lay people to do certain tasks, maybe to help operate a ventilator under the supervision of a respiratory therapist. Do you have any experience with those sorts of programs in an emergency?
1: I think when you talk about task shifting. In more in developing countries. So using, say, community health workers and nursing staff to do things that perhaps weren't in their normal scope of practice, but equipping them and training them to do things that they can do Mm -hmm. after they're trained so that some of the responsibilities of people who are maybe more scarce or in supervisory roles can be shifted to them. Mm -hmm. So they have, you know, basically a greater impact and affect more people. I think in terms of situation in the United States, for instance, when I talked about intensivists, there's plans uh, put forth for surging critical care provider capacity by having a trained intensivist uh, oversee, say, advanced practice providers mm-hmm. who work with 24 beds each. There's a model that was proposed by the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Wow. But it's essentially a, almost like a task-shifting model where there's oversight and then training of people that are, that are actually, um, you know, interacting with with patients. So
0: in other words, what you're saying, it's not just getting more people in, but really shifting everyone's level of responsibility in the healthcare system.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's things that as a physician, I know I don't need to do. And in a surge situation that maybe when I say I don't need to do them, I mean, they don't require, like my level of training isn't required to do that task. Right. So in surge, those kinds of tasks should be shifted to people, other people, so that I'm spending all my time doing the tasks that only I can do.
0: So the human resources has really got to go running right alongside the physical resources for for medical surge.
1: Yes. Any
0: final thoughts on how people should, you know, think about this? It's kind of strange to have the convention center turned into a hospital. You know, any other considerations or perspective you'd bring from your different experiences?
1: I think we just have to be, you know, we're all, we're healthcare providers, you and I, but, you know, as patients and people with families and things like that, we have to, to all be coordinated in how we support, say, the US healthcare system in terms of guidance around when to seek care and these kinds of things. Healthcare workers are uh, scared, they're, they're anxious, and, and you see calls for them saying, you know, stay home if, you're, if you have mild symptoms. You don't see the benefit of that individually, but it's really a societal benefit. And so we should all kind of heed that attention for the benefit of everyone.
0: Great. Well, I completely agree. And thanks for mentioning that. And thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen McCusker and Spencer Greer with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.